I invite you to now stand with me as we turn our attention to God's word because it is God's word that instructs our hearts. It is God's word that helps us to live in the midst of evil in this fallen world. And this passage today gives us hope to do so. So we will be in verses one through seven of Second Peter chapter three this morning. This is the word of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today recognizing that we live in a world fraught with evil. And we have seen it before our eyes on display for all the world to see the wickedness of man's heart. And as we see that, God, we are reminded of our own sinfulness, our own depravity, our own sin that you, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, rescued us from. So I thank you, God for the gathered body of believers that is a testimony to the redeeming work of Jesus. We pray, God, that this will be a place where evil is not tolerated, that this will be a place where sin will always be confronted, that this will be a place that the righteousness of Jesus will be exalted, that this will be a place where we find hope as we persevere together. Instruct us in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we move now into the third and final chapter of Second Peter, we continue in the same idea that we have from the beginning, that Peter is calling believers, this next generation of believers within the first century church, to persevere, to stand firm, to remember that which they have believed and to continue walking in it until their death or the return of Jesus. Over the last three weeks in chapter two, we uh, saw the primary opponents of Peter and of the message of the gospel in who he labels the false teachers. Peter is now going to shift from directly addressing who the false teachers are to what the false teachers message contained. And he is now going to, in this third and final chapter, 
directly address right doctrine so that those who he is writing to can contrast that with the false doctrine being proclaimed by the false teachers in their, in their midst. So this week and next week, we will concern ourselves with the return of Jesus. Now, we have done that over the course of the last several book series that we've been through here in, uh, on Sunday mornings as we've gathered uh, to worship the Lord and to study his word. The last few books that I've preached have been First and Second Thessalonians, and then before Second Peter, the, book of, the Old Testament book of Daniel, and now here in Second Peter, all of which have extensive passages that talk to us about the return of Christ. And in many cases, particularly in First and Second Thessalonians and in Daniel, there were times that I had to say, what we are writing, what I, what I am preaching about and what was being written about are things that we can either be certain of or things that we need to hold loosely because maybe our interpretation is correct, but that there are valid other interpretations because these are events that have yet to transpire. And for some of you, that has been an encouragement that it's been an encouragement to know that, that we can do good theological triage, that we can put doctrine in specific categories and hold some things very tightly and some things less tightly and still be able to cooperate together as the body of Christ. I have good news for you today. As we turn our attention again to the return of Christ, what I'm going to preach on today are things about which we can be certain I am preaching on things that we should hold in a tight grip, that we should say there is no moving off of this, that this is a hill to die on, that Jesus is coming back. Now, we may squabble over the nature in which he is going to return on what it may look like and what will happen to the church of God before or after those events and what a tribulation period may be like and what a millennial reign may be like. We may be able to discuss those things in Christian brotherly love with one another and disagree, but here's something we cannot disagree on, church. Jesus is coming back. We can have certainty in the thing that is to come, the return of Jesus. And I believe this text calls believers to persevere knowing that Jesus will return. The knowledge of the return of Christ fuels our perseverance. We can live faithfully, obediently to the Lord day after day, no matter what we face in this life, because we know one day our Savior will return for us. And this is Peter's argument. This is how Peter refutes the false teachers of his day. Begins this way, that we must believe the biblical evidence that Jesus will return we must believe the biblical evidence that Jesus will return. Peter says in the first two verses, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter reminds them that he has already written to them once 
inevitably he is talking about what the book of first Peter happens to be the first book of the Bible that I preached through some seven years ago when I became pastor here at Nansman River. And he reminds them that in that letter and in this one that he is calling them to continue in their perseverance, to continue to live godly lives because the gospel had radically changed them. And that is the theme of both first and second Peter. One of our greatest tools of perseverance is remembrance. And he reminds them to remember what he had already written to them and in a broader sense for for them to remember the predictions of both the holy prophets, talking about the Old Testament, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, talking about what would become the New Testament. And this is one of the benefits of the book of 2 Peter, one of the later writings of the New Testament, is when we get into the later writings of the New Testament, the the authors of those last books begin to look back on the teachings and the writings of the apostles as if it is what we believe it to be, Holy Scripture. You gotta remember, Peter raised a Jew would have held in high regard the Old Testament as scripture. But in the same breath, he says, remember what the holy prophets said and remember the commandments of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, that it is both through what God said in the Old Testament through the prophets and through the Lord and his apostles that we know what God has said to us. So we must regularly remind ourselves that which we hold true, that we believe these things. Now, Peter has already in this letter told the church where we are to base our authority. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter has already told his readers that they must depend upon the authority of Scripture. Now he reminds them what Scripture teaches about the return of Christ. And the return of Christ is a primary doctrine in Scripture. It's mentioned over and over. (coughs) Excuse me. It's mentioned in the Old Testament numerous places. We're going to see some of them in a minute. But in the New Testament, this is one of the primary teachings of the New Testament. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, 25 of them either directly address or allude to the return of Christ. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus. This is why I can stand before you and say, we can unequivocally recognize. It's not gonna do me any good. I appreciate it though. If I put that in, I'm just, it's gonna make, I appreciate it though, thank you. I have been, anyway, you can hear it in my voice. I'm going to push through that. So what, what happened, what, what we have to recognize is this, this is not, the return of Christ is not some minor teaching within the Bible. It's this major doctrine. We have to recognize, have to recognize 
the importance of it. I just want us to point out some of them. You'll notice there in your notes, there's this long litany of text. I'm going to run through these really quickly. And this is just a sampling of the, the, the many places where scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New, speak to this. Look at Isaiah 13 first. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it's rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evils and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. At the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger, The prophet Isaiah tells us that his coming will be judgment upon the wicked. In Micah chapter one, verses three and four, you read, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valley will be split open like wax before fire, like waters pour down a steep place. Micah ensures that we know that his coming will be felt by the entire world. In Zechariah chapter 14, the prophet says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall be northward and the other half southward and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Zechariah tells us of the specific place to which Jesus will return. And then Jesus, during his own ministry, numerous times tells us it's his second coming. In Matthew 16, 27, he says, For the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus tells us that his coming will have personal ramifications for every single individual who has ever lived on this earth. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then after his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. His coming, Paul says, will establish an eternal rule by destroying all rulers and authorities in this world. A verse we considered some few months ago in First, in first Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes there, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of the command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul here says that his coming will reward believers with the resurrection of eternal life. These are just a sampling of the many things that we should hold to be true that we can be certain of. Let me tell you something. If you're here this morning and you don't believe that Jesus will one day physically, bodily return to judge the living and the dead, what in the world are you doing here? I mean this. I'm I'm sincere. There are better places you could be on a Sunday morning if you don't hold that to be true. You could have slept in this morning. It's a beautiful day. You could go play golf. 
You could be fishing. You could do a lot of other things. Because if you don't hold that to be true, you're just wasting your time being here. What are we doing if this isn't true? Now, if you're here because you're trying to determine if this is true, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we have your attention. If you decide in your mind that it is not true, then listen, you're not somehow hedging your bets by showing up here and earning some kind of some kind of reward with God because you did some good things and went to church. Part of the Christian faith, an essential part of the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus is coming back. And hear me, we can be certain of this because the biblical evidence screams to us, screams to us, Jesus is coming back. Over and over and over again, Jesus will return, the Bible tells us. Second, though, we must withstand the scoffers who insist that Jesus will not return. The scoffers are those false teachers that Peter had identified in the second chapter of 2 Peter. And he now says that believers must withstand their false teaching, that they must withstand their scoffing, they must withstand their mocking, they must reject their false teaching. Look at verses three and four, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In verse 3, Peter tells us that scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffers, that's not really a word that we, that, that we use all that often. A scoffer is one who, who mocks and says something contrary to that which you believe and kind of holds you in contempt for your belief. And there are those that hold the church in, in contempt for our belief that Jesus will one day return to judge the living and the dead. As there were in Peter's day. I always point this out when we see these, this phrase in the New Testament. Peter says that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. And you may say, well, that's today because there's definitely scoffers today. And there are, and I'm going to get to the scoffers of today. But Peter is addressing scoffers of his day, which meant Peter believed that he lived when? In the last days. And every generation in the church since then has believed that they lived in the last days because, among other things, there have been scoffers of in every generation. There have been those that have doubted the return of Jesus all the way centuries later to our generation. And so, yes, we should believe we live in the last days. Yes, the generation before us believed they should have lived, they, they believed that they lived in the last days and should have. And so on, all the way back to Peter. That's the intent. We're we are supposed to live as if Jesus will return at any moment. And there will be those that say he will not. There will be those that try to lead us astray. Jesus tells us this. When speaking to his disciples about his return in Matthew 24, we're told that he sat on the Mount of Olives, that place that he's going to return. It's not by accident, by the way, that Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives, the place where the prophet had said he would return 
to teach. So in that very place that he says this is where he will one day return. And the disciples come to him and says, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. There will always be false teachers who want to point you away from the true Christ. There will always be false teachers who, who want to lead you towards some kind of Jesus that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. There are examples of this throughout history. There are examples of this in modern day on, on many sides of the spectrum of people that are wanting to take who Jesus really is, the Jesus of the Bible, and transform him into something that he is not. Transform him into something of their own image. And this is what the teachers, the, the false teachers, the scoffers now in Peter's day were wanting to do. What have we already seen about their identity and their character from chapter two? We've seen that these are people who want to fulfill their own pleasure. They want to fill their own pockets. They want to live how they want to live out in the daytime, openly in sin. And so because of that, they take Jesus and they change him into something that allows them to do that. And people have been doing that from Peter's day to our own. And Jesus says, watch out for many are going to say, I am Christ. Many are going to say, this is what Jesus looks like. Many are going to say, this is, this is uh, who Jesus really is. But in truth, he's not. In truth, what they're following is a lie. And we must be able to recognize the lie. This is why Peter spends so much time on this. We must be able to recognize this lie for what it is, a lie that is seeking to lead people astray. In the companion letter of Jude, which we've seen so many times in this series, Jude says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Jude leads into the teachings of the apostles and reminds the church that these scoffers will always be around. There are always going to be people that want to try to redefine who Jesus is to fit their own means. And in Peter's day, that meant saying that Jesus wouldn't return because just follow this logically. If Jesus isn't going to return, then I get to do whatever I want to do, right? Now, he then, in verse 4, directly addresses their argument. So this is why it's in quotes. So, so Peter is quoting them. He's framing their argument, right? And he frames their argument in a very, using some very Old Testament language. He says, in verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So we ask, what was the specific false teaching concerning the return of Christ that Peter was addressing? Because we don't fully know, because fortunately, their false teaching is lost to history because people didn't believe it. But we do have some clues here from the way Peter frames it. The first is the question that he asks, where is? And where is, is a rhetorical form often found in the Old Testament used to mock the prophets. For instance, Jeremiah was mocked by his critics with the question, where is the word of the Lord? Malachi was mocked by his skeptics with, where is the God of justice? And so they ask, 
the, now the scoffers, these false teachers say, where is the promise of his coming? They say, wasn't he supposed to come back? Did, did, aren't you saying that he's supposed to come back? Well, he hasn't come back. Then they, he, they mention, at least Peter frames their argument in this way, in verse four, for, by saying this, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. So they, he seems to speak for them again here, first in this rhetorical question, and then second, by really stating what their argument is, and that is that for generation after generation, things just continue as they always have. So we have to ask, who are the fathers that fell asleep? Who are, in Peter's words, framing the words of the skeptics? Who, who are they talking about? Most likely, those who have fallen asleep, continuing, in, continuing to rely on the trend of the Old Testament language here, is looking all the way back to the patriarchs. It's looking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there are some explanations of this that say it's looking to someone else. But I think that, that Peter is using some Old Testament lingo here that's important for us. So every time the fathers is mentioned in the Old Testament, every time the fathers is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's looking back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what they're doing is they're looking into the, the long ago past and saying generation after generation, everything has continued. This is really the meat of their argument. Everything has stayed the same since the beginning. So recognizing that, we can summarize their false teaching as this, that the work of Jesus may save people in the next life, but has no real bearing on the world because nothing has changed since the beginning and it'll just keep going as it has. Professor Jim Shaddix writing on this subject says, this mockery is still around today. Skeptics often talk about the chain of cause and effect in a closed universe governed by natural law where miracles almost by definition cannot happen. The laws of nature, we're told, disprove any doctrine of divine intervention that supposedly will wind up the course of history. You see, there's, as we read in Ecclesiastes, there's really nothing new under the sun, folks. That, that the same accusations that were happening in Peter's day, that he was calling the New Testament church to persevere in the midst of is the same accusations, the same skeptics, the same scoffers that we today are called to persevere in the midst of. Third, we must trust in the Lord's providential work from creation to the return of Jesus. Peter is now going to counter their argument. He frames their argument in verses three and four, and he is now going to counter their argument in verses five, six, and seven. Look at it. For they deliberately overlook this fact. Peter says, oh, they think they're so smart, but they have missed something so important. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth, heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Paul, a Peter, sorry, 
counters this argument with a call to recognize the providential hand of God at work in our world. He matches the skeptic's Old Testament argument with an Old Testament argument of his own. In verse five, he affirms that God created the world by his word. In verse six, he says that God destroyed that world with water. And in verse seven, he says, looking to the future, that by that same word that created the world, the world God will do it again. What Peter is calling believers to understand here is that God is at work from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. Now we use two different words that sometimes we get confused and I wanna clarify for us. Sometimes we'll use very often, the more common word that we use to describe God's ability to do anything is his sovereignty. The sovereignty of God means that God can do anything. This is his world and we just live in it. And it is his right as God to do anything that he wants. But what Peter is describing here is not the sovereignty of God. Peter is describing what is known as the providence of God. We use that term less, but the providence of God as defined by Millard Erickson is the continual action of God in preserving his creation and guiding it towards its intended purposes. And it is this doctrine, the providence of God that Peter is relying on here. He's saying that God has been providentially working from the beginning of time to bring about all things to the conclusion that God desires the return of Jesus. Some 350 or so years ago, as our predecessors in England were founding the Baptist church and what would eventually become American Baptists and Southern Baptists that we are today, wrote what is known as the London Baptist Confession in 1689. And in the London Baptist Confession, they speak in several articles about the providence of God. One of those in this way. The London Baptist Confession reads, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for the which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness and mercy. Hear what our Baptist predecessors are saying, that God is telling the story from beginning to end and that God is working in that story in every single detail. And that's what Peter says. Peter says from the very beginning, God was at work and God is going to continue to work to bring about that which over and over in his word has he promised will pass. The psalmist in Psalm 75 says, at the set time I will at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment. Putting down one and lifting up another for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours it out from it 
and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dredges. In poetic form, here's what the psalmist says. God's in control and God is working, ultimately leading to what the psalmist affirms at the very beginning of that psalm, that God has appointed a time for the return of Christ and all things in his creation are moving towards that end. There is not a molecule in this universe that is not moving steadfastly towards the end, which culminates in the return of Christ. It is all being controlled by God to bring about the end that he has ordained. So what? The certainty of Jesus' return provides fuel for our perseverance until our faith becomes sight. Be of good cheer. Be of courage today, Christian. Because while, yes, scoffers exist in our day just as they did in Peter's, while, yes, there are those that would seek to doubt the message, the good news of the gospel that culminates in the return of Christ, where are those that who will look at us and think we are foolish, know this, we have hope. Our faith will one day be made sight. We can believe and be fueled in our perseverance that Jesus is coming. And like the generations before us, not knowing when he will return, we can believe it will be in our lifetime. We can hope it will be in our lifetime. And if he comes today or if he tarries thousands of more years, it is according to the the plan of God. In the book of 2 Corinthians in the fifth chapter, Paul writes about Our earthly body, he calls it a tent, very common phrase, a tabernacle, very common phrase for this earthly form that eventually wastes away. But he also writes about the indestructible body that God is preparing that awaits those at resurrection. And then he writes this, so we are also of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We persevere with courage, good courage, because we have faith that Jesus will return. One day that faith will be made sight. My question to you for every person in this room today is are you ready to see Jesus? For the believer in this room, it should be a resounding, yes, I am ready to see Jesus. There should be no earthly attachment that we have that should keep us from longing for the return of Christ. For a very long time, I worked with teenagers. I'm back doing that now again uh, while we search for a new next-gen pastor here at our church. And what I found with teenagers is if I were to ask that question of them, they would go, "Uh, could I get married first? Could I go to college for? Could I maybe live some of my life for? But you know, that's not reserved for them. There may be some in this room that would say, could I see my children grow up? Could I see my grandchildren grow up? I've worked really hard. Could I, you know, enjoy a few years of retirement first? Listen to me, church. There should be no earthly attachment that keeps us from saying, oh, Lord Jesus, would you come? Lord Jesus, would you come? I long to see you face to face, whether I am at home or away. I seek to make it my aim to please him. God, I'm gonna live for you in this life, but if Jesus could come, would he come? But here's the other side of that question. Recognizing there may be unbelievers in the room. There may be people that 
that, that are exploring the idea of Christianity. Maybe you've relied on your own goodness or the goodness of others around you. Maybe you were at one point a scoffer. Maybe you're a doubter. Maybe you're one that thinks Jesus may not return. I hope from this text and from the, the testimony of scripture this morning that you are convinced that he will. My question is, will you be ready on that day? You say, preacher, how do I get ready? Turn towards Christ in faith and repentance alone. You see, there's no good act, there's no good deed that you can do to prepare yourself for the return of Jesus other than this. Believe that Jesus lived the perfect life in your place, died a sinner's death in your place, was raised to life by the power of God and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. If you believe that, you'll be ready. You say, that's it? (laughs) Yep, that's it. And when you believe that, the Lord gives you a new heart and a new nature. And then you join the rest of us in persevering until our Lord returns. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for the fact that Jesus will return. Thank you, God, for the hope that we have in the sure and true event of the return of our Savior. Thank you that your providential hand has been at work since the very beginning to bring about the end that you ordained. God, would we as a church live faithfully persevering until that end? Would you bring it, God? Would we be able to see our Lord face to face? long for that day. I pray, God, for the man, woman, boy, or girl that hears this today and says, I believe that. Would they put their faith and hope in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.